I pick up the phone to call. Your response is cold, lifeless, our silence long and hollow. I lost you. I try to fill the spaces with moments that once was. They are ghosts to me now. You remain. I cannot reconcile your life and our death. So I learn to mourn your loss when I am with you by silencing expectations and denying the resurrection of disappointment. I close my eyes when I see you, tell myself you're not there. Not really, not for me. It takes too long. Your death was neither warranted nor expected. Amos Wilder once said that imagination is a necessary component of all profound knowing and celebration, of all remembering, realizing, and anticipating, of all faith, hope, and love. You see, when imagination fails, doctrines become ossified, witness and proclamation, wooden doxologies and litanies, empty consolations, hollow and ethics legalistic. When this happens, doctrine becomes a caricature of itself. Then that which once gave life begins to lull and finally to suffocate. In today's episode of The Protagonistas, I chat with Tanisha Tyler about theopoetics, community, and the practice of embodiment. We also talk about Afrofuturism, communal grief, and Octavia Butler. And I thought that quote by Amos Wilder really encompassed a lot of what we chat about. I was really moved by my conversation with Tanisha, and I hope you will be too. Welcome to The Protagonistas. Yeah, and just as someone who is doing really, really cool things in just a lot of different areas and intersections. I know your bio here, I'm going to read it because I think it's an awesome mouthful. Sweet. So, you are exploring a theopoetic disposition for ethical concerns and engaging the intersection of theology, ethics, and culture through the work of Octavia Butler. Yes. (laughs) That is awesome. So, we're definitely going to talk more about that. But before we do, I want to hear just a little bit about your spiritual background, where are you from or where you grew up, and if you grew up within a particular tradition, what was that? And yeah, just your childhood. So, crazy story. So, I didn't grow up in church. So, my family went to church before I was born, and then for some reason, I don't know, because I wasn't born yet, um, (laughs) stopped going. But my mom had a very, very deep spirituality, Mm -hmm. and so I learned... Um, she was my first teacher yeah. in terms of like how to connect with God, and right. gospel music every Saturday. And um, one of the stories she always told me, which was really formative for me, was when she was pregnant with me. She was in a Pentecostal tradition. Just uh, I don't know if it was a particular denomination, but uh, she went to a revival when she was pregnant with me mm-hmm. and received the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the revivalist gave her a word, which. She actually never told me what it was. But the revivalist <laughs> also gave me a word in the womb. Whoa. Um, and supposedly the revivalist said that the words knowledge and wisdom all the days of her life were written across oh my, my forehead. Oh my gosh, and so, yeah, so that's the story <laughs> that my mom would tell me wow. as a kid. Like, this is your story. You have so much favor with God. And wow. So a lot of my, um, by the time I ended up in college when I was actually going to church, and I would go periodically like as a kid by myself, but I'd already had a really deep relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Um, I started going to mostly non-denominational but charismatic churches in college. 
So I would say that's probably the tradition I spiritually grew up in. Yeah. I didn't know actually about many other traditions until I got to Fuller. Like right. I didn't know what a Presbyterian was. Right. Yeah. I didn't know any of the things. And yeah. you know, people were like Presbyterian is for And I was like, um, yeah. What's a Presbyterian? And everybody <laughs> just looked at me like, what? And then yeah. they were like, oh yeah, I guess people probably wouldn't know. Not everybody knows what right. a Presbyterian. And they are very confused. I don't think I still really even know what a Presbyterian is. <laughs> no, I totally get that. <laughs> but it was, it was, um, yeah, denominations and, and, and different faith traditions were really fascinating to me and also really interesting. So um, I had a ton of fun learning about them, but I did not grow up knowing about them at all. Right. I just grew up with my mom's spirituality, really. Yeah. So how did, how was the journey for you to decide, like, okay, I'm going to pursue this seriously and academically? Because I feel like that's a whole other yeah. thing. So yeah. how did that transition happen? So I, when I got to college, I always knew I loved God in school and I was an artist I've been writing poetry since the sixth grade fifth or sixth grade at this point and um, when I got to when I started going to church regularly and started being involved in church leadership um, I discovered that there was a thing called theology and it was basically connecting all the things that I loved and I was mm. like well that makes sense I'll just do that right. um, and I was actually initially discouraged because I was a woman mm-hmm. um, about pursuing it um, so much so that I put it on the back burner mm. And it wasn't until the summer, summer or fall of 2010 mm-hmm. that I really started going, okay, I have a bachelor's, right. been stuck in this job, I need mm-hmm. to do something else. And somebody was like, have you thought about seminary? Because I've been doing ministry the whole time. Okay. And all of that came back. And I prayed the prayer that I don't recommend you pray unless you're really serious, which is... <laughs> God, just close all of the doors right. in front of you and open the one, like that hopeful prayer. And then, you know, yeah. the company I worked for went out of business and I fell out with my oh. best friend. And literally from the time that I applied to Fuller, because I Googled it, that's how I found Fuller. Yeah, same. <laughs> and I was like, seminaries in California. And I was like, oh, they have arts. I'll just go here. Right. I knew nothing about nothing. it. That yeah. really literally formed my uh, decision. By the time that I applied to the time that I was in class was a month. Wow. So, that's amazing. Yeah. God yeah. was just like, oh, you ready now? Okay, here you go. Yeah. And I was like, what just happened? Right, right, right. So that's, that's awesome. how I ended up here. Yeah. That's similar to me when I started seminary. It was like that. Like, I was like, oh, I guess I'll do this, you know? And then I just show up, and I was like, what am I doing yeah. here? Like, it was just like a fish out of water, you know? Like, oh. Um, but that's great. I'm glad that you chose this path. Um, <laughs> <laughs> me too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I do want to get to this mouthful of a thing that you are doing <laughs> because I think it's amazing. Okay, so we'll start with theopoetics. Yes. Um, I know that that's something that it's it feels very niche, right? Like I feel like a lot of a lot more people that I know are starting to talk about it. Um, it's getting more popular and so yeah, do you want to tell me what is it and how did you get interested in it? Well, I know you've been yeah. writing poetry for a while, so. Yeah. But yes. So I've been writing poetry for for a good while and have always had questions about spirituality and poetry and always knew that part of my calling the thing that I felt called to do was to care for artists and their spirituality and and I was really interested in how artists thought about that mm-hmm. um I didn't know about theopoetics into the summer or well, the fall of 2017 okay um I connected with Patrick Reyes who is a great friend and mentor of mine um plug for his book nobody cries when we die oh yes uh Definitely, if mm-hmm. you want to know about like vocational calling, and mm-hmm. you have to read that book. 
Um, so I met with him because I was really curious about what other um, scholars of color were doing stuff in the arts. Right. And I was like, hey, I'm just looking for people in my field. And he's like, well, what's your field? And I was like, theology and the arts. And he's like, well, that's my field. And I was like, you do exist. Yeah. So, <laughs> I love it. So we met and we had coffee. And he just kind of told me about this thing called theopoetics. And my advisor had talked not necessarily about it. So theopoetics, the, the term has been around for a while, but it hasn't been really big. So it started with um, Stanley Hopper, who was one of the people who helped start the first program in theology and literature. Mm-hmm. Um, or is it, don't quote me on that. <laughs> on a podcast, right? Uh, it's either Stanley Hopper or Amos Wilder. I can't really remember but I want to say it's Stanley Hopper and he talked about um, how do we understand something that's theopoetics which doesn't necessarily replace theology but it gives another path in which to encounter the divine that is not just this logical systematic way Mm -hmm. of thinking about God Um, it is a way that is very deeply embodied it is artistic it, it allows for a space for mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, it more connects to the everyday life mm-hmm. and the way in which we embody community and all of those things and how those things are ways in which we can understand God. Mm-hmm. It's a different way of knowing. Right. Um, it also, as it is, relates to poetry and the arts because poetry and arts also do that for us. Right, they right. help us to create these body communal ways of knowing mm-hmm. um, beyond just very logical ways. Mm-hmm. So heard about that and I was like oh this sounds like me yeah you know it sounds like yeah. the kind of questions that I want to ask right. and so then I got connected with an organization called ARC okay. Art Religion and Culture mm-hmm. and they originally started um, in the 60s with people like Paul Tillich again Stanley Hopper and mm-hmm. had all of these different fellows including like Ralph Ellison, Denise Levertov, Frederick Buechner, mm-hmm. um, all these different people that are at the center of like arts and theology conversations. And they would have all these different people come and talk about what does it mean to engage spirituality in the arts and what does it mean that you're a spiritual person and you're doing the arts. Um, they continued on and then eventually partnered with another organization that was academically about theopoetics. Okay. And so they became art, art, religion, and culture. And so we have a website. It's literally arts, religion, and culture, mm-hmm. all one word. And it is, um, there's no and, sorry, artsreligionculture.org. Okay. And it has all the information you would need, all the definitions, all of the resources. We do conferences. We do all of that. And so I'm currently serving as the co-executive director. Yes, congrats. That's, oh, thank uh, you. As of recently. As of November uh, 1st. Oh, yeah. Hey, congrats. Thank you. And so I'll read to you what our definition of theopoetics is. It is an emphasis, style, and positive concern for the intersection of religious reflection and spirituality with the imagination, aesthetics, and the arts, especially as it takes shape in ways that grows community, focuses on material change, and affirms the importance of embodiment. Mm. And so that's essentially what theopoetics is. It's not meant to, again, replace theology, but it's meant to give a different way. And so... When I encountered that and I began to learn a little bit more, I was like, this is, this is it for me. Yeah, this is the yeah. way that I have always encountered God right. um, and other people. And I didn't realize I, there was a name. Yeah, for it. that there was like, yeah, it was a thing. Yeah, that wow. it was a, especially a thing to study. Right. And so once I discovered that, I was like, well, this is it. This is, this is yeah. my area. And I got to figure out 
where I fit within this area. It's still very much an emerging field, and it has historically been um, very white and very male, Mm -hmm. but there are so many younger scholars of color who are doing some incredibly Mm -hmm. amazing things. Um, And so they're going to be publishing and doing all of that, so be on the lookout for that. I will recommend um, Ruben Alves, who is one of the pillars of Theopoetics. He is a Brazilian scholar. He has incredible books, so Mm. I would highly, highly recommend you read anything he does. He ends up getting his PhD uh, from Princeton, left the academy because there wasn't like a the resonance between the work he was doing and the academy was very dissonant mm-hmm. and ended up writing children's books as wow. his way of doing theology. That's and amazing. so he has I some really incredible stuff to read if you're really interested in um, a prime example of theopoetics. Yeah, I'll yeah. include that in the, in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. So I'm interested, you talk about embodiment and I know that that's something um, I actually had a conversation with someone yesterday about that and about, um, and she, she's a black woman and she talks about how just being in the black church when she was young, she felt like she's grown up and there's been like a disembodiment between like her and the church. And so we kind of started talking about embodiment mm-hmm. and she was saying that she's in this journey of like trying to almost like re-embody. I don't know if that's like the way that you would say it, but, mm-hmm. um, and so I don't know, what's been your journey of embodiment or disembodiment or want to just talk about embodiment in general. So I usually will talk about embodiment as um, it is the practice of paying attention to your body. Mm. That sounds very simple, mm. but it's extremely difficult. Yeah. Um, and so I think part of the ways in which I encounter that is thinking about where I hold certain things in my body, mm-hmm. paying attention to if certain things happen, happen mm-hmm. um, how do I carry those things in my body, both mm-hmm. good and bad. So mm-hmm. if I'm really excited, like, what is my body doing? Mm. Or if I'm really angry or if I'm really stressed out, like right. what is my body doing? How is my body, body alerting me mm. um, to those things? And I think that that practice with your own body allows you to think about other bodies mm. and how other bodies are regarded. And so it goes from you paying attention to your body, how it's carrying certain emotions and certain things, to how you think about your body when you mm. think about certain aspects. like. Mm. Um, the Bible tells us to, you know, love ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Or love others as you would love Mm -hmm. yourself. But I think the loving yourself part Mm -hmm. um, is something that's extremely difficult, especially as it relates to our bodies, and especially if our bodies are not, um, do not look like what we have perceived the ideal body to be. Mm -hmm. And so I think that some of the ways that we can learn the practice of embodiment is not just understanding how our body carries our emotion, but how our bodies are uh, show up in certain places mm-hmm. and what we think about our bodies in those places right. and wh- how we hold those societal norms and we hold our body to those societal norms and does that create um, a perpetual distrust or hate in mm-hmm. ourselves because we have determined what the ideal body mm-hmm. should be. Mm-hmm. I think it also means paying attention to the ways our ideas, our practices, our policies affect other bodies. Mm-hmm. Because the reality is, like, we're so focused on ideas right. that we forget that actual bodies are implicated yeah. in the results of those things. Right. Um, what are actually what are happening to actual bodies on the ground? Mm. So, if our policies mean that bodies are being detained or caged or locked mm. up, or hurt, or people are dying, or like, you have to pay attention to what happens to bodies based on those things. And if 
bodies are being broken because of the yeah. ideas that we have, we need to reevaluate those. Yeah. Um, and so for me, it has become a good indicator of, well, how is this affecting actual material bodies? Right. Um, to keep my ideas grounded mm-hmm. and not just this. It's really easy in academia to be like, I have mm-hmm. this idea and this policy right. would go great with it and I've created this whole system <laughs> yeah. and I'm going to write a book about it and then three people are going to read it and I'm going to be a senior. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. but how does it it's actually affect though, yeah. Yeah, actual bodies, you know? Right. That's good. So that's what I think about when I think about embodiment. That's good. Yeah. Thank you. All right. So I, I was actually, I was going to ask you this later, but since we're talking about bodies and, and I do love how you um, connected like personal embodiment to other bodies. Because mm-hmm. I feel like a, when I've talked about embodiment, when I've had conversations about it, it is like how are you connecting with your own body and then it kind of just stops there. Yeah. Um, so I do love that you're taking that a step further. I think that that's really good. So can you talk to me about um, like the idea of, I know that you've done some work on communal grief and communal liturgy. Mm-hmm. And so how does that, you know, your your focus or your work in theopoetics, you know, connect to this idea of communal grief, communal liturgy? Yeah. Grief is communal. <laughs> uh, it is. Mm-hmm. I think that it, it is the, the way in which we think about community is it's either the community or the individual. There's mm-hmm. never a yes and. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think sitting in that yes and, yes, the person is grieving, but that grief is still mm-hmm. a part of a community. It's for a community. It's for another person. So it's, you know. Right. Um, when we think about communal grief, I think part of it is, again, remembering the actual bodies on the ground. So uh, part of what you're referring to is a subversive liturgy project that we did in the, the year of, from Advent 2016 to Advent 2017, where we decided to bring the grief of the Northwest Pasadena community, who had just lost one of their members in a um, violent police encounter that resulted in his death, J.R. Thomas. Um, bringing the grief of that community to the steps of power. Mm-hmm. So we held liturgical services at the front front door of the Pasadena police station mm-hmm. every week for a year. Mm-hmm. And it, it was really about remembering what happened to JR mm-hmm. in his actual physical body, right. bringing our physical bodies to the steps of power as a form of protest, right. um, using our bodies, our voices, our minds, as a form of grief, mm-hmm. but then actually encouraging people to take that that next step further. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're going to be putting your body on the line, that's also meaning you're putting your time on the line, you're putting your money on the line, right. um, because the result of it is, is, is he had eight children. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, how are we going to, like, what does it mean to care for those children? What does it mean to care for that community? What does it mean to physically cross the border of the city which is the 210 freeway and actually Mm -hmm. go into another community and you know create some kind of solidarity um what does it mean to address the the way power is dispersed Mm -hmm. geologically um physically you know um and so i think that communal lament allows you to be present in the space of another person's grief Mm -hmm. to acknowledge that to acknowledge the ways you've been complicit Um, and to always fight for solidarity in that space. Mm-hmm. And part of that meant that, you know, if the police ever showed up, that for us, the white people in that space physically put their bodies in between our bodies and police bodies. Right, right. Um, and that was something that they were committed to.
I think it's important. I think it's about physically showing up. Liturgy is about moving community from one place to another place, and part of that move is physical. Mm -hmm. It's just not just ideological. Right. Um, it's not just singing a bunch of songs. Mm -hmm. We forget again that there are things that actually happen in our physical bodies when we engage in that. You physically feel the reverberation. I don't know. Say that vibration. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> when you sing, when other people sing, like your bodies are deeply invested in that, and your bodies hold that. Um, and so, what is the reality is that you know, as we think about even something like liturgy, mm -hmm. the way we you know sing, the way we pray, the way we think about what goes first, the way we listen, mm -hmm. all of that has to do with our bodies. Yeah. Um, and so to remember that, mm -hmm. and to to connect that to um, the loss of actual bodies. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Okay, so I want to talk to you about your engaging in the intersection of theology, ethics, and culture <laughs> through the work of Octavia Butler. Um, yes, that's so interesting. So talk to me first. Who is Octavia Butler um, to you? Like, how do you describe yeah. her? And then um, how did you get into that work? And then how do you connect that with theology, ethics, and culture? Yeah, so <laughs> Octavia Butler is a science fiction writer. Mm -hmm. um, she passed away in 2006. But she has written countless series of books and um, short stories that is so beloved by so many people. Mm -hmm. Mostly known for um, Kindred, which is a time travel novel about a young black woman in the 70s that gets pulled into the antebellum South to save her ancestor, mm -hmm. who is a white male. She has to preserve his life. Yeah. Um, in order to preserve her own and the complexities of that reality. Right. And also the book that I'm going to be focusing on for my dissertation, the Parable Series, okay. um, which is about a young black girl in the midst of a dystopian Los Angeles wow. whose father is a Baptist minister, and she begins to create her own spirituality mm. and gather community around that and what happens. Mm. As Octavia Butler says, when you look at how religion is a force for change. Mm. She is, like I said, extremely beloved, especially in the black community, one of the first uh, major writers of science fiction, um, African-American woman, mm -hmm. um, winner of the Nobella and the Hugo Awards, which mm -hmm. is huge in science fiction literature, um, and is considered one of the pillars and the mother of a series of study community way of being called Afrofuturism. Mm -hmm. So when you think about the ways in which a community of color thinks about future, space, all these different things. So think like Janelle Monet, think, mm -hmm. you know, Parliament of Funkadelic, all of those mm -hmm. kind of things. That's Afrofuturism, and so she is the mother of that, as well as a lot of the science fiction writers that we see today, including N.K. Uh, in Jemison, who wrote the Broken Earth Trilogy and won the Hugo Award. I think it was the Hugo Award for each of those books, which wow. is unprecedented in the history of the genre. Wow. Um, it's very much indebted to Octavia Butler. Yeah, wow. So how did you get into her work? Um, read Kindred many, many years ago. Thought it was great. Said I should read more. Life mm -hmm. happened. Didn't. Yeah. Um, took a break in 2017 because I was overworked and burnt out and I needed to take a break for summer right. and decided to only read fiction. Um, her work was being featured at the Huntington Library here in Pasadena. Mm -hmm. Somebody gave She's me. She's from Pasadena. Yeah, I didn't that's know awesome. this at the yeah. time. Yeah, that's cool. She, uh, someone gave me a ticket to go see it. And I went and saw the exhibit, and I was like, wow, this is great. Why didn't I read her? I'm going to pick her up again. I saw a display for the Parable series and was like, I'll start there. Wow. <laughs> and read it, and everything changed. And I was like, wow. 
why are we talking about this? Yeah. It did some digging, um, found that there is actually enough material for me to engage it as a dissertation and not wow. just a paper. And then found out that she was from Pasadena. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and that all of her work was at the Huntington, which is down the street. Yeah. So it was really a godsend. <laughs> yeah. It was really, I was like, this is scary. Right. <laughs> so it was really a godsend um, how that happened. Yeah. But yeah, her work is. So how are so you engaging good. her work with currently in, in your in, yeah. yeah, yeah. So what I'm currently thinking about is how do I think methodologically about theopoetics? Like what mm -hmm. are methods and practices to help us engage um, the work of theopoetics academically? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, as well as a, as a way to facilitate conversation and ways of knowing amongst pastors and mm -hmm. other spiritual leaders and artists and activists and um, scholars. Mm -hmm. I originally was going to use her work, like her novels, mm -hmm. as a an artifact or a trace in which to take through the methodology. But mm -hmm. I went to her archives at the Huntington, and her research on like religion and developing um, religion in her parable series was so extensive that mm -hmm. I realized that I was doing it wrong, <laughs> and um, quickly realized that she herself is a theologian. Okay. She entered into the conversation and mm -hmm. did this extensive work and research. And there is something key in her methodology that I think we can learn from. Yeah. So I'm going to be looking at her work, the process of her work. And so this is this is also not just looking at an artist for their work, their end product, but it's looking at their process of thought right, as right. something that we can bring to the table and, and shift the conversation a bit, as I said earlier, um, to a group in Grand Rapids from artistic product as metaphor mm -hmm. to artistic practice as epistemology or mm -hmm. a way of knowing. Yeah, um, yeah. What are the practices that artists are doing that help us know different? Yeah, yeah. As opposed to, this book signifies this thing. Right, right, right. Uh, there's, there's another mm -hmm. layer that right. we can get to. Okay. Um, and I think the key, I think she's the key wow. in, in helping us to get there, so. Yeah, that's yeah. so good. So I did do some like research on her and I, I was actually blown away by some of the themes that she uses. So I don't know if you mm -hmm. want to talk a little bit about those. So she does like a critique of present day hierarchies. Mm -hmm. um, and she, I was looking at, the, she's also like the remaking of the human, the survivor is hero, the creation of alternative communities. Um, and then like you said, the Afrofuturism. Mm -hmm. um, so is there any particular thing, you know, about any of those themes that have stood out to you particularly or that you've been working on specifically? Yeah. The, the critique of hierarchies actually is from her exogenesis mm -hmm. series, mm -hmm. which, I mean, read everything, but mm -hmm. um, where um, the alien race that comes to save humanity after mm -hmm. humanity destroyed itself in a uh, huge war says that one of the greatest um, mistakes that humanity made, or one of the biggest downfalls, is hierarchy. Mm -hmm. It's the way in which we have been obsessed with hierarchy. Mm -hmm. um, and she does a really brilliant critique, critique about the ways in which hierarchy has actually been her downfall. Uh, yeah. um, Survivor is hero. Most of her, if not all of her um, protagonists in her work are women, women of color. She really focuses on these complex characters that are not perfect, but mm -hmm. are actively creating new ways of being and living. Mm -hmm. um, that leads to better futures, especially in the parable series. Mm -hmm. um, the character Lauren is um, a young girl. She has a disability. She's 
you know, her family is gone, she's trying to, but she gathers this alternate community mm-hmm. that really is about honoring the land, honoring each other, um, mm-hmm. fighting against slavery, fighting against sex trafficking, creating new ways of, of being and like new ways of living, um, and actively doing so. Right. And, and actively thinking about the ideas and the theories that undergird that way of living. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's very active in that regard. Mm-hmm. That one, that is probably the one that I have been drawn to the most, yeah. because it seems to me that that's as, as Christians, those are some of the things that we should be doing. Right. She actually pairs it quite brilliantly with the fundamentalist Christianity tradition, mm-hmm. um, and actually in the second book of the parable series, there is a fundamentalist group called Christian America mm-hmm. that rises to the scene, and their pastor gets elected president. And in a speech, he says, we need to all come together to make America great again. And she wrote it in 98. Now, our current administration didn't come up with that slogan. That was actually from the Nixon era. But she is picking up on a lot of the ways in which fundamentalist Christianity Mm. and a lot of these politics and and the the ties there and what it births Mm. um, and and what happens with that. And so she complicates um, a lot of that. But the community that she builds in Earthseed is, I think, a way in which Christians should live to honor the land, to honor each other, mm-hmm. um, to be able to have discussion and conversation where people can be openly critical and say, I don't, how did you get to come to that? What about right. this? What about that? Mm-hmm. Um, so it creates this very generative space uh, that I think we need to pay attention to. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's what I'm hoping to do yeah. in this work. That's so good. Yeah. Um, okay, so you identify as a womanist, mm-hmm. um, and you are using, please correct me if I'm wrong, but you're using womanist interpretations as part of your methodology, correct? A little bit, yes. Okay. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about um, just being, identifying as a womanist, um, just a little bit about womanism in general, um, and how that influences your work? Yeah. So, I think I started to discover more acutely womanism in grad school, um, especially womanist theology, especially as it relates to like Katie Cannon um, and a couple of other people um, whose name I'm blanking on right now. <laughs> um, the reason that I am pulling womanism into this work is because one of the things that I, I hold dear about womanism is the, the ability to look at other aspects of life as having authority to speak to um, one's spirituality or encounter with the divine. Mm-hmm. And one of those um, rich resources is literature, mm-hmm. and particularly black women's literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and that speaks to me directly because I, I have my undergrad degree in black studies mm-hmm. when I with the emphasis in African-American literature. Mm-hmm. And there are some literature books that get me to my core yeah. in the way that some scriptures do for people. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them being one of the my favorite scenes, hands down, is um, one of the scenes in Beloved by Toni Morrison, mm-hmm. where Baby Suggs um, goes to a clearing with people and tells them to laugh and to cry and to mm-hmm. dance. And mm-hmm. there is this beautiful scene in where the men are laughing and the women are crying and the children are dancing, and then they start to switch, and then everybody's doing one yeah. or the other, and it's just this this beautiful moment of freedom mm-hmm. that really resonates with who I am as a woman and particularly who I am as a black woman. And so the freedom to be able to see aspects of the divine 
in everyday life, mm-hmm. and particularly in literature, um, helps me to uh, have a very robust spirituality that's mm-hmm. very deeply rooted, but it doesn't feel constrained. Mm-hmm. Um, I think looking at the particularities of what it means to be a woman of color, particularly a black woman, what it means to deal with racism and sexism at, at a very different mm-hmm. Um, in very different ways, um, what it means to think about things like intersectionality, mm-hmm. and what that work means for the freedom of everyone. And I think mm-hmm. that's that's the key for me. It's not just a, we're gonna, you know, I need to understand this because it's, it's really only about black women. And it is about black women, mm-hmm. and I love black women. But it's a way of knowing mm-hmm. that results in the freedom of everybody else. Mm-hmm. So then, Cuban women can say, yeah. well, there's some very particular things that we have to deal with, mm-hmm. both as women and as Cuban women. Right. And like, there is this freedom to go, oh, I can do that. Okay, I need to really mm-hmm. dig into that and to be, one, proud of who I am, mm-hmm. um, to love my people, mm-hmm. and to still want freedom for all people, male and female, right. and those who are not within those constructs. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a certain sense of what I call prophetic hospitality, mm-hmm. meaning that there is this radical openness to um, other, to other people, other other ways of being, other ways of knowing, mm-hmm. that speaks a certain truth to power and to the status quo that is a, that has a prophetic edge to it. Mm-hmm. And how can we be so radically true to who we are, mm-hmm. and so radically open for people to be true to who they are, right. and that creates the type of communities. Um, that empire would call dangerous. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. So actually, this I was reading one of your recent blog posts, and it just made me think of this. And you had a couple of really awesome quotes. So I just want to like read them and then have you yeah, like, sure. expand on them. Then I can remember which blog um, post this. <laughs> it was the one about about um, I believe it was community actually. So oh, okay, kind of talking about community. Okay, so you're talking about how there's like three different types of people and whether people, if they're, <sighs> yes. yeah, they empower you or, um, so one of the things that you said is watch out for people who so easily fit you into their vision. They always have to trim you down to do so. They don't limit you to harm you. They limit you to make sense of you. And yes. I thought that was so good. So if you want to just expand a little bit on that, um, yeah, your thought process yeah. in writing that and yeah. I have learned that there are always going to be people who think they know you, but will never really be able to hold what I call the depth of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there are ways in which we can say, oh yeah, it's basically this. You ever get a concept, you're like, it's really just this. It's just mm-hmm. a different version of blah, 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 blah. Right. And in some ways it is, but in so many other ways it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that people who are satisfied in Oh, you're just another da 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 da. Are you remind me of that person that right. is da 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 da? And you so easily fit into a box for them. Um, the problem I have with that is that you don't have the opportunity to be more than, mm. or to be complex, or to change, right. or to evolve. Um, because the moment you do so, you no longer fit, and then they have right. to create a whole new framework. And da-da. and so, I think that the people who hold you with open hands. Mm who see you for who you are, but know that there's always going to be more, um, give you more room to grow. And I think it's dangerous to hold people within a particular limitation because um, 
you want people to change, but then you want to regulate what that change is like. Mm -hmm. And change can never be regulated. Right. And so you're automatically setting yourself up, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. for a failure or disappointment. Right. Um, and I don't think it, I haven't necessarily, I don't know necessarily what to do with those people, but to just understand that to a certain extent, they can't hold the depth of you. So you have to manage your expectations right. around them right. and around um, what you tell them, mm -hmm. how you present yourself to them, mm -hmm. um, because they have a very different framework of who you are. Right. And only you know really like yeah. the depth of who you are. Right. And I feel like even that in that sense like you're always surprising yourself, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> with what you're the yeah. depth of your own self, right? Yeah. Um, and actually going along with that you say oftentimes it isn't others who limit us. We limit ourselves. Yes. We forsake our own imaginations and give into logic alone, cutting off an arm and a leg as a cost no one asked for. Yes. We conform to stereotypes we've concluded we've, we should fit into when we are actually meant to break those stereotypes. We are meant to be larger than them. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was really, really, yeah. really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah, because it's also, um, yeah, and I think that goes along with what you were saying, like it's for the freedom of everyone, right? Like when we limit ourselves or when we um, forsake, like you said, our imaginations, like we're not just limiting our own freedom, but we're li limiting the freedom of those around us who, you know, mm -hmm. not just benefit from them, but who as a community, like as a communal, um, yeah, people, right? Mm. So yeah, really, really good. Thank you so much for you. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, and so one last thing, I just want to, I know that poetry is, I guess you would say your love language, I don't know. It is, it is very much so. <laughs> um, so if you just wanna share a little bit about your process of writing poetry and yeah, as a spiritual practice and just. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I have a process. <laughs> if I have a process, I do, but it's just, most times when I write poetry, I am first trying to write myself out of something. Mm. Uh, I have overwhelming of emotion, I'm extremely happy, or I'm extremely frustrated, or I'm grieving, or I'm whatever it is. And I'm mm. trying to write myself out, and I don't know that it's a poem until I finish it. And I'm mm. like, oh, that's good. That's a poem. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, oh, I got a little bit of time. Um, see if I can find one. Yeah. I'll find one that probably represents that the most. Here we go. So I wrote these poems. Um, so like I said, I write myself out of poems, and I don't know that it's going to be a poem. So this particular poem, um, I was going through something with a friend, and I didn't know how I felt, but I had all the feelings, and I just needed to write myself out of it. Mm -hmm. And I remember I wrote it, and I was like, I sent it to a friend of mine. I said, I think this is how I feel. And they said, whoa. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what do you mean, whoa? Should I like post it on my blog? I wasn't like, <laughs> I don't know how people respond because right. I'm not necessarily writing for people first. Right. I'm writing for myself. And so this one got actually a lot of positive response in that other people resonated with how I felt mm -hmm. because I really put words to how they felt. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I should have. Uh, yeah. yeah, so that's mm -hmm. really my process. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, but this one is called How to Grieve the Living. Mm -hmm. And it says, I pick up the phone to call. Your response is cold, lifeless. Our silence long and hollow. I lost you. I try to fill the spaces with moments that once was. They are ghosts to me now. You remain. I cannot reconcile your life and our death. 
So I learn to mourn your loss when I am with you by silencing expectations and denying the resurrection of disappointment. I close my eyes when I see you, tell myself you're not there. Not really, not for me. It takes too long. Your death was neither warranted nor expected. And so it's just dealing with the concept that we don't only grieve people when they die, we grieve people when we lose them. Yeah. And part of that is the loss of friendships, people moving away, um, estranged family members, all of those different things. And how do we put words to the fact that people are still around, but they're lost to us? Yeah. And that too is a grieving process. Yeah. And we don't acknowledge it as so, but then we feel it feel again it. in our bodies we don't know what to do with that because right. we haven't put a name to it. Yeah. And so this was just really helping me to name what happens when grief is present um, and so is the person. Mm. And it just lifts grief out of this concept of only being about um, physical death. Right. Um, because there's more loss than just yeah. physical death. Yeah. And so, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. So good. Thank you. Okay, there's actually one more thing. I really liked that I was watching a video, um, I think it was that you were talking about the communal grief and liturgy, Yeah. Um, and you talked about community as an unlikely gathering of a group of people committed to the shalom of each other. Mm-hmm. And I really love that definition, I'm wondering if there's anything else that you want to say about that. Say what I said again sometimes, <laughs> I just be saying random stuff, and people are like, you said the thing, and I'm like, I did, what did I say, I don't remember. <laughs> It's an unlikely, unlikely gathering of a group of people committed to the shalom of each other. Yeah. I often find that in really special moments, whether it's church or community, where it's just like, why are we friends? <laughs> because yeah. I'm like, you as a person, like, I would never... Right. Society says we shouldn't be friends. Or like the way that I think about how to be friends, like we shouldn't be friends. Like I wouldn't walk up to you and be like, hey, do you want... But there's something magical that happens when you're placed in the same physical space as other people and you are forced to contend with their being <laughs> as it relates to you. And, yeah. and when you make the decision and commitment to be committed to their shalom in addition to mm-hmm. yours, something magical happens but there's a commitment there and I think that's where the community happens community isn't just people being in the same space it's why you have families that are estranged it's why you have um, people that you know should be close but aren't close because the the the, it's not just proximity and it's not just only blood it's a commitment to the peace of that other person Mm -hmm. and you make that commitment when they get on your last nerve yeah you make that commitment when you're just like, I just can't with you. Right. Um, but I'm committed to your peace. So and good. my peace is tied to your peace. Now what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's where community starts, right. I think. Um, and in that, there there should be boundaries. You should always be committed to, you know, your own peace. You always put your mask on first mm-hmm. before other mm-hmm. people. Uh, we don't teach that enough. Right. But I think that it is knowing that there is this interconnectedness and this um, interdependence, mm-hmm. uh, my peace and your peace. Mm-hmm. And when I understand that and when I'm committed to that, right. that's where our community begins. Right. Amen. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That's so good.